Folks, I want to start by this morning by telling you about an identity crisis that I'm suffering just at the moment in my life. Round about the age of nine or ten, I was a little bit late coming to football. Uh, my dad wasn't into it, nobody in my family was. But round about the age of nine or ten, I started to love football. And for me, it was Man United. The Man United of the early 1980s, Ron Atkinson, the fake tan, the gold jewellery, the white slip-on shoes, the players, um, Brian Robson, Frank Stapleton, Norman Whiteside, that's where football started for me. Some of you might remember the, the footballing culture of the early 1980s. To be a Man United fan committed you to two things, really, to love Man United, but I think, I wonder if it actually committed you to something else even more, to hate Liverpool. You know, United never won anything, they, they, were, just, they were just there finishing eighth in the league on an average season, but hating Liverpool, now that was worth getting out of bed for on a Saturday morning, that was worth listening to the, the radio commentaries for, just hoping that Liverpool might slip up. So here's where my identity crisis kicks in. I'm starting to like Liverpool. I'm secretly checking out their scores, hoping that they're doing well. And there's a reason. It's because they have a new manager, this man here, Jurgen Klopp. I first got to hear about Jurgen Klopp about two and a half years ago. Um, in the spring of 2013, he had just led his team, Borussia Dortmund, to a Champions League final. On the way, they had hammered uh, Real Madrid in the semi-final, so the footballing world couldn't help but take notice. What, what is this team? Who is this guy? They booked their place in an all-German Champions League final to be played at Wembley. So I first got to hear about Klopp a few months before I, I got to hear Klopp. And the first time I heard him talking at any length was in the pre-match interviews before the Champions League final. The TV company had just done a little bit of a, a piece on the Borussia Dortmund team, the incredible team spirit that they had. Um, you know, they'd had players on saying things like, you know, we had run through walls for the boss, this kind of thing, um, just trying to understand this team. And then the interviewer came to Klopp himself, and at this point, my jaw dropped. At one point in this interview, before I don't know how many, I don't know, half a billion people, possibly the big interview before the Champions League final, he said this, I always hope the room is a better place when I walk in. It's normal. I'm a Christian. And he goes on. He's talking about football, he's talking about Borussia Dortmund, he's talking about the Champions League final, and he's told half a billion people that because of his faith in Jesus Christ, he believes any place that he goes into should be a better place. Wow. Great story. I'm, I'm not sharing it simply because it's a great story. That would be the danger for a preacher. Anything that you come across that excites you, you know, I'm telling you this story today because I think it's a wonderful 
illustration of the thing that we're going to talk about today in our Fruitfulness in the Frontline series. We're going to be thinking today, as Claire's already said, about a fourth way in which we can be fruitful, that is, live for God's glory. We can hope to make the room a better place. We can hope to mold culture. Remember what we've said so far in this series. Every one of us has a front line, a place where we meet people who don't yet know Jesus Christ, people who could be encouraged to live for him in greater ways. And our prayer for them, every one of them, is that they'll come into a life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ. That's our prayer. But what we've begun to see in this series is that our, our lives aren't boiled down to only the things that we say about Jesus. God shows us in his word that there are endless ways in which we can live for God's glory. That is, we can live in ways that, that enhance God's reputation before a watching world. And we have talked about these in our series so far. We've called them the, the M's, the six M's. We can model godly character we can make good work, we can minister grace and love, and today we come to the fourth of these M's. We can mold culture. Before, before we go any further, I need to tell you what I don't mean by this. Uh, culture can mean a lot of different things. It's, it's a, a word with quite a diverse range of meanings. What I'm not talking about today is, is high culture. I'm not assuming that most of you are going to make a film uh, in this incoming year or write your first novel, or have an album uh, streaming on iTunes. I'm, I'm not talking necessarily about that. That is, that's, that's one way of talking about culture. That's not what I'm talking about here today. When I talk about culture today, I sim- I'm simply talking about any community's normal way of being, the way we do things around here, okay? So every community has a culture. Your family has a culture. You think you don't because you think the way you do things as a family is normal, but it's not. It's, sorry, I, I don't mean your family is not. You know what I mean. Every family has a culture. Um, sorry. Uh, our family had a very strong and very unique culture, so I, I know that we were not normal uh, by any stretch. Every workplace has a culture. Every team has a culture. The big thing with the All Blacks, I believe, isn't, isn't really down to having always the best players or even having always the best technique. I would suggest the strongest thing the All Blacks have is the strongest culture. They have a sports team culture second to none. Every front line has a culture. All the places where you are, they have ways of doing things. Some of those ways are good. Some of them aren't so good, and some of them are downright destructive. Now, the interesting thing is that the Bible can teach us a lot about how to live on diverse cultures, because so many of the characters in the Bible live in diverse and and often less than ideal cultures. So Abraham, Abraham lived in a culture where everybody around him was worshiping idols. Joseph Joseph lived in Egypt and served in the court of Pharaoh who demanded that his people worship him as a sun god. That's his culture. That's where Joseph gets to follow the living God. Daniel lives under a totalitarian regime, Nebuchadnezzar, if you remember those stories from 
from Sunday school. Esther, the kids are learning about Esther at the moment. Esther lived in a time when God's people were about to be wiped out, ethnic cleansing, long before that term was invented. So these cultures are are diverse and they're difficult. Jesus Christ, Jesus lived in Roman-occupied Palestine. Paul, he lived in various cities with all sorts of intellectual um, intellectual ideas being exchanged, all sorts of occult and superstitious practices. That was his culture. So if we're living in a time when our culture as, a, as the people of God doesn't seem to fit very well with the culture in which we live, hey, join the family. God's people throughout history most of the time. This, this, I think, explains why God gave his people the law. Whenever he rescued them out of Egypt, and, and he gave, us, gave them the law, which is recorded for us in the book of Exodus, books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, they were to help these people live out God's culture in the middle of other cultures. And they dealt with every area of life. We find the laws quite weird because they're 3,000-ish years old. They don't all immediately make sense to us. But one thing you couldn't argue with, the reach, the scope. They, they deal with, God's law deals with animal sacrifice to sexual relationships, from farming to festivals, from commerce to caring for the poor. And last week, if you, if you were with us, you'll have seen, we got to see just how glorious a life is when somebody lives God's ways. Do you remember Boaz? What did he do? He cared for the poor, looked after widows, welcomed refugees, foreigners. Did all of that because God's law uh, required it of him. To put it in today's terms, you know, we might have said that Boaz was being a nice guy. Today, in today's terms, we're going to say that Boaz was changing the culture. Changing the culture of the village of Bethlehem. Bethlehem worked differently because Boaz was there. And this isn't just an Old Testament idea. Sometimes um, we need to be careful to show that an idea extends right through the whole of Scripture. Whenever the lawyer came to Jesus and asked him about the law, and he said, what's the most important command of the law? What did Jesus say? He, he boiled the law down, all those diverse and far-reaching commands. He boiled them down into two things. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. That's the first and greatest command. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. In other words, these are to be the primary shapers of any culture, loving God and loving people. This is how you evaluate how healthy a culture is. Is this a place where God is honored and where people are loved? So a a family ruled by a bullying parent fails the test. 
an organization that's run for the benefit only of its bosses, uh, using and abusing its employees, not, not respecting its clients, not looking out to the, the greater good in the community, fails a test. A nation that cares only about its own prosperity fails this test. The culture's not right. Jesus was, was interesting in this regard. Jesus was very much a culture shaper, very much uh, a person who looked at the culture as he found it and demanded that it be different. So whenever he saw the religious leaders, if, if you read the Gospels, you'll find that the religious leaders of his time were often a, a, a sort of a self-important and pompous crowd. They wanted respect in the marketplace. They wanted people to defer to them in the synagogue. And Jesus, what does he say? I come among you as one who serves. Take, take that famous incident of Mary and Martha. Mary's complaining because uh, Jesus is teaching and her sister, or sorry, Martha's complaining. Um, Martha's complaining because her sister Mary, instead of helping her in the kitchen, is sitting at Jesus' feet. It's a culture where women don't sit at the rabbi's feet. That's a job for the boys. Boys sit at the rabbi's feet and listen, and the girls make the tea and the sandwiches. That's how it works. Mary comes, sits at the rabbi's feet, and he affirms her and says, that's great. The best thing that any person can do, a woman or a man, is to sit at my feet and to learn from me. Jesus challenged the culture in any number of ways. Let's go back for a second and see what this might look like in real life. Let's, let's go back to Jurgen Klopp and see how he's getting on. He says he's a guy who likes the room to be a better place when he walks into it, and that's normal for him because he's a Christian. Well, how's he getting on molding the culture of Liverpool Football Club or even the Premier League? Well, I've, I've been watching carefully. Um, to, to help you understand this next part of the story, I need to tell you about another Premier League manager. If, if you're here this morning, by the way, as a visitor and you think I talk about football all the time, I, I don't. I very rarely uh, talk much about football. Jose Mourinho... Since I wrote my sermon, he's taken another, he's had a bad weekend. Jose Mourinho uh, came to the Premier League for the first time 11 years ago. And in one of his opening interviews, um, he was explaining a little bit about who he was. And he said, I I'm a special one. He was explaining that he had won the, the Champions League with his club Porto. And in his opinion, he, he was special. Um, the, when Jurgen Klopp was unveiled a couple of weeks ago to, to Liverpool and to a watching world as their new manager, one of the questions he was asked in the press conference went back to the Jose Mourinho introduction 11 years ago. The, the question was something like this. Whenever Mourinho arrived 11 years ago, he, he referred to him as the special one. How do you want to be known? Or how do you refer to yourself? as you arrive in British 
football. And he hummed and had and he thought about it and he said, well, I'm just a normal guy. My mum is probably watching this, not understanding much of it because she doesn't speak English. Um, maybe I'm the normal one. And if you've followed the, the headlines or watched the, the back pages the last couple of weeks, they've started to talk about Klopp as the normal one. So here you have a guy who is in an environment where male bravado and arrogance are accepted and almost expected. And he says, no. I'm just a normal guy who who loves football and will do my best for this team. Later in the conversation, um, a thing came up about the Liverpool team and whether it was good enough. And the insinuation was exactly the same as it always is in British football these days. If you're going to turn Liverpool into a good team, you're going to need bucket loads of money because you're going to have to sell the team that you currently have and buy in better players. What did Klopp say? Stop talking about money. It's not always about money. Instead, he's demonstrating a loyalty to the players he already has over the ones he could go and buy from other places. Loyalty, not money, will be the currency of the culture he's trying to create. I wonder whether you're with me this morning, whether this is starting to click yet, what it means to mold culture. You're doing it already in your home and in your workplace and in your street and everywhere that you go. You make a contribution to the culture of that place. You look terrified. Isn't that quite something? The place gets better or worse because I'm in it. It's very rarely neutral. That's a a huge thing to begin to to grapple with. Either we're, we're helping people flourish and to be all that they could be in God's purposes or else we're somehow holding them back. We know from God's word that God wants us to be people who see others flourish. That passage which we read this morning from Jeremiah 29, I think is one of the the starkest and most interesting examples of this in Scripture. God's people are living in exile in Babylon. They've been sent there because they're bad. It's like the monumental national naughty step. Go over there and be there because you have failed. There's nothing, and Babylon's a very pagan environment. So God's people are there because they failed. They're in a pagan environment. What you'd expect the Lord to say is, right, huddle together, keep among yourselves, keep from being contaminated by those people around you, and eventually, when your time's up, we'll get you safely back home. That's kind of what you'd expect. And what does God say to his people? He says, build houses. Settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce, marry and have sons and daughters, increase in number there, do not decrease. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you in exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you'll prosper too.
don't just pass time in Babylon or in your workplace. Contribute to it. Remold it for my glory. What is it Paul says in Romans 12, that passage which Claire used at the, at the start of her service with us? He says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't do this, but do this. It's either or. Here's the thing. Either we're molding culture or culture's molding us. Either we're molding culture or culture's molding us. Paul knows how easy it is to be molded by the culture, to gossip because everyone else does. If everyone else is doing it, it must be okay. To be absolutely besotted with our our appearance because that's how our culture works. To be cynical about our boss or our customers or our teachers or our pupils because that's normal. Paul says, no, don't be conformed. Don't go with the flow of the culture. Look to see the culture transformed as you live for God's glory there. Folks, the cultures in which we find ourselves, the places where we are, are so diverse that there's just simply no, no list of things that you could do. I think sometimes the small steps, smaller than we might even imagine, are the ones that God can use. The way you treat people around you. I don't know if you saw, oh, I, th- I was going to say, this isn't in my notes, I was going to say I don't talk about football, but here I go. The Alex Ferguson leadership thing. Don't know if anybody watched that. Alex Ferguson's doing a leadership tour where he gives you the secrets of his leadership. Ferguson was known to be a bit of a tyrant, and I don't think the... the documentary did anything to dispel that. I think he was a pretty hard guy. But I'll tell you what, he affirmed everyone. So he knew the cleaners who worked at Old Trafford. He knew the boot boys. He knew everyone who who was there. What about being people who learn to affirm? What about letters that we could write to express our gratitude? See a handwritten letter? 20 years after the advent of email. Very honoring experience to receive one. We could do that. A Christmas card that says more than season's greetings, but says thank you. I appreciate this thing that you are or that you've done. Choosing to apologize in a culture that doesn't do that, where nobody takes responsibility, Everybody's Teflon, non-stick, slippery and superficial. Once in a while we put our hand up and we say, that was my fault. And so on. Changing the culture. In each of my sermons in this series, uh, I'm wrapping up here, I've tried to share a few stories of people from the Kirkpatrick Church family who are changing the culture. There are only a few stories I'm sorry I I don't have time to tell more, and I'm sorry I don't know all the stories because there are great things that people are doing. One guy has had the chance to change the culture of his workplace. I told you about this a couple of weeks ago, but I want to revisit it. 
This is the guy who bakes the soda bread every Friday morning, brings it into his workplace still hot with butter and jam for his team to gather at 11 o'clock and have a, a coffee break together. I thought that that was a really nice example of what we talked about a couple of weeks ago, ministering grace and love, just being, being nice, just bringing a bit of beauty. But I think there's more to it than that. I think he's molding culture too. You see, before he started doing this, the guys in his department didn't talk. And now they do talk. Before he started doing this, they had a very difficult relationship with their management, the, the big boss. But now the big boss comes and he joins in and the walls are breaking down. The culture of this whole department is changing and it's because one Christian person decided, I'm going to go in and change, remold the culture of my workplace. Glory to God in the workplace. Here's a creative example of somebody changing the culture at our dining table. I I love this one. In a culture where millions of pounds are spent marketing sugary, uh, life-shortening drinks to our kids, a member of Kirkpatrick Memorial has done some beautiful work to remind us, if we could fire up the slide, there it is. A member of Kirkpatrick Memorial has done some beautiful work to remind us that God's... Do you see it there? You, you need to, I hope you don't miss it. Milk with the eye turned upside down into an exclamation mark. Milk suddenly as the thing that's, oh, you know, milk when I could have, you know, 60 spoonfuls of sugar in a Coke Turbo or whatever. Milk shown to be a beautiful thing, an exciting thing, God's provision for us. Gently contributing to the changing culture. Glory to God at the breakfast bar. Using our gifts to change culture. Others in our church family are changing the culture of their street. Last summer, um, one of our discipleship groups and, and districts decided to host a party, a street party in the street where they live or, or gather. Um, so they put out some flyers to gauge whether there'd be interest Um, Lots of people in the neighborhood said, yeah, we'd be interested in that. Um, Lots of the people from the neighborhood helped to to plan and to prepare the street party. Uh, And then it ran very, very well. They reckon that about 75% of the neighborhood showed up. Now think about that for a second. Three quarters of a street in a modern privatized hide-behind-your-hedges-and-doors neighborhood. 75% of people wanted to be a part of this. And the bit of the story I love, whenever the, the, the police had closed down the street with um, traffic cones for a, an agreed period of time, but whenever the police arrived at the end of the agreed time to take down the cones, they saw the party was still going. So they said, Usher, crack on, and which I can hardly imagine the PSNI saying very often these days. The culture of a street being transformed no longer is your home this private place where we don't know our neighbors, but potentially a place of uh, joyful celebration. Glory to God in the suburbs. Folks, I think Jurgen Klopp is right. I think God does want the room to be a better place because you're in it. 
and because I'm in it. So let's pray and ask him to help us to remold the cultures of the places he's put us. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that our front lines would increasingly be better places because we're there. We pray that you will use us to create better homes, better streets, better classrooms, and better workplaces. We pray that we'll learn to see that all of this is normal because we're Christians. We're people who love Jesus, people in whom the Spirit of Jesus is at work. And Lord, we pray that as you use us to remold our cultures, you'll gain much, much glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.